I was trying to stay in denial because denial was a, seemed to be a much safer place and denial really does play a, a huge role in helping us wait until we're at the point where, where we're ready to deal with things. But this was the point where fear was really breaking through the denial. And there was some anger breaking through the denial as well. And so I would have these wrestling matches with God, you know, are you there? Do you care about me? Do you love me? Do you love my son? You know, what about my marriage? Which was things that was rough, you know? And, but I, after I would have these wrestling matches, I would just sink into the quiet. I had learned how to meditate, Christian meditation, after my dad died, which was six years before Joel was born. And that practice of meditation really, I, I can really say it saved my life. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll-Thompson. Welcome. My name is Colleen Swindoll-Thompson, and I want to introduce Kathy to you, a mother of three sons, one who has disabilities, which you will hear about. She is an author, a speaker, and an incredible prayer warrior. Kathy, welcome to our time together. Thank you, Colleen. It's really a pleasure to, pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Um, Kathy, why don't you start us out at the beginning of your journey. You've recently written a book, which we're going to be talking about, but how did all of that come to fruition? It's been 25 or so years. Well, I have three sons, and my youngest son was born in 1985, and he, we had a, a pretty difficult birth, mm. and probably when he was about a week old, he had jaundice, and pretty severe jaundice, huh. and I was given a choice at that time um, of whether to leave him at the hospital or to take him home and bring him back every day for blood tests. So I chose the latter and the jaundice got quite a bit worse. And I think about on the last day of, of the testing, one of the nurses says, oh my gosh, they almost always hospitalize the babies when the, when the bilirubin counts get this high. How high was that, by the way? Oh, I'm, I'm thinking it was like 24, 25, something okay. like that. Because my oldest and, actually had jaundice. And so I'm hearing this okay. going, okay, I did the exact same thing with the heel pricks. and Yes, the heel pricks. And, you know, <laughs> your precious little baby. And, yes. Oh, my gosh, that was so hard. But anyway, that was the day that the count started to go down. But I learned later, um, I learned later that high bilirubin counts can cause mental retardation or intellectual disabilities. So that's kind of where our journey started. Okay. And um, Joel was maybe 18 months old before we finally pursued um, getting some testing done. He was very floppy, very floppy as a baby, very bright eyed, very engaged with people at that point. And the neurologist said, well, I, th I think he has hypotonia, low muscle tone, and I, other than that, I think he's fine. 
But then, you know, he just didn't keep up with any of the developmental timelines. And when he was two, maybe two and a half, he still wasn't walking. So we pursued a physical therapist who recommended enrolling him in a multi-handicapped preschool, which we did, and had to have him tested for that. And the testing results of that came back uh, moderate intellectual disability. And I just took those test results, put them in a drawer, and said, nope, he's just delayed. You know, he just has develop developmental delays. But by the time he was five, it was pretty obvious. So we had a multifactored evaluation done. And at that point, PDD NOS yes. was diagnosis. Um, yes. And it was like, what the heck is that? You know, <laughs> I don't think the doctors even know what that is. No, but that's I don't okay. think so either. I think Not that's kind of been been an umbrella term. And so I would say probably around the age of three is when the behavioral issues started pulling glasses off of people's faces, pulling earrings, not being able to tolerate changes in routine, a lot of tantruming. And that, you know, that went on through his, through his early years, although he was just an absolutely delightful, delightful little boy and just beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. And just a, a very bright, bubbly personality as well. But his teen years is when things got really rough when the hormones started percolating and then the anxiety just went through the roof and aggression became just a huge huge part of the picture how did your other boys do with all of this i mean you have two very typical boys i'm assuming mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. he comes along and yeah the diagnosis is in the drawer and yet you're yeah. trying to do all you can how was their response yeah. well my middle son, Justin, just spent a lot of time with Joel. He really enjoyed playing with him. You know, he would he would get behind Joel's bed and, and have puppets coming up <laughs> next to the bed and doing the puppets. And Joel still talks about that to this day. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, he does. And Matt, I would say that Matt really, Matt's relationship with Joel really started to deepen a little bit later when he was a teenager. So Matt's much, much more of an introvert. So he was kind of off doing his own thing. Okay. But, you know, it was, it was difficult for the whole family. And, and we pursued some family counseling so that the older boys would have an opportunity to talk about their feelings in a safe, you know, in a safe place where they, they felt that it was safe to say whatever they wanted to say. Well, this was before sib shops, before sibling understanding. This was before right. autism diagnosis was very popular. Exactly. I mean, yeah. they, that long ago, they pretty much said, put them somewhere and just move on with your family life. And you chose not to do that. Right. Yeah, you're pretty much on your own. And that's when I, I started looking for books of other people's journeys. Mm -hmm. And there just was nothing available at the time. And I was, had just started going to some writing workshops. I'd always dreamed of being a writer. And mm -hmm. what I kept hearing at these workshops was, write what you know. Write what you know. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, <laughs> I know what it is to grieve yes. a child's disability. Yeah. And just happened to meet uh, a fellow who became my mentor. His name was Tom Mullen mm -hmm. at the Earlham School of Religion. And he really encouraged me to send a proposal in for a fellowship that they had. And so I did, I, I wrote a proposal on a book idea of writing about the grief. 
Yes. That comes with receiving a diagnosis. Yes. So that was that was my first book. His name is Joel, Searching for God and a Son's Disability. And just kind of went through that whole grieving, the grieving process in that book. Well, we're going to touch on that in a minute. But one of the mm -hmm. things I want to highlight in your book, and I, this is not the formal copy, but because it's a little bit messy, but here is the cover of your book, The Spiritual Art of Raising Children with Disabilities. Mm -hmm. And the mosaic we're going to also talk about. But as you can see, I have thumbed through this thing so many times because I love it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you start out with is this quote, which I know there are many who are wondering this very thing today. In mm -hmm. fact, I think I've been wondering this a little bit in the last few months. But you write, are you there, God? Are you mm -hmm. listening? I can't do this on my own. I'm handing him over to you, Lord. He's mm. yours. And you're going to you're going to show me how to mother this child because the mothering skills I have learned over the last 12 years with Joel's brothers just are not doing the trick. I'm helpless here, Lord. Are mm -hmm. you there? Are you mm -hmm. listening? Yeah. Not many people openly talk about that but that's the feeling that you have so often when you yes. pray and pray tell me what surrounded that writing hmm. besides well, feeling you know, totally helpless <laughs> I'm, yeah exactly i was afraid i was really, really afraid and i i was trying to stay in denial because denial was seemed to be a much safer place and denial really does play a huge role in helping us wait until we're at the point where we're ready to deal with things. Yes. But this was the point where fear was really breaking through the denial. And there was some anger breaking through the Absolutely. denial as well. And so I would have these wrestling matches with God, you know, are you there? Do you care about me? Do you love me? Do you love my son? You know, what about my marriage? Which was which was things that was rough, you know, and um, but I, after I would have these wrestling matches, I would just sink into the quiet. I had learned how to meditate, Christian meditation, mm -hmm. after my dad died, which was six years before Joel was born. Mm -hmm. And that practice of meditation really, I, I can really say it saved my life. It really kept me, I think, kept me from totally going off the deep end. So I would go back to meditation after wrestling with God, sink into the quiet, come into God's presence, and just soak in his love. And it was really, you know, during those times that I realized how very deeply God loved me and how very deeply he loved Joel how much he loved, you know, each of my boys and my marriage. And it really, I, I can really say that it was a physical, physical sensation of how much he loved me. Sometimes I would just be washed in light. Sometimes just a warmth would just radiate out from my heart center. It was just um, an amazing discipline. I'm, I'm so thankful that God prepared me with that discipline. Uh, before Joel was born. And it, it actually, that was the discipline that helped me get through my grief over, over my dad's death because I, I was very close to my father. So, you know, it was like wrestle with God, 
and then go into the quiet and be answered with his presence. Now, I'm going to get ahead in our questions because um, the word meditation in the Christian community brings up a tremendous amount of question, fear, Buddhism or other religions, right. Eastern practices. Right. Yeah. So help all of us understand what does that really mean to sink into the quiet and mm -hmm. to let the Lord wash over you, because that is, it's hard to be still. And you write about stillness a lot mm -hmm. in this book, which mm -hmm. I love. And it's hard for me to be still. So explain meditation in mm -hmm. the context that you're speaking of. In the book on meditation, I, I do talk about the difference between Eastern meditation and Christian right. meditation. And in Eastern meditation, the idea is to empty the mind. And in Christian meditation, the idea is to quiet the mind so that it can be filled with God's presence. Um, in Eastern meditation, you are trying to reach nirvana. And in Christian meditation, we want to be transformed into Christ. I mean, that's, that's the whole idea is to be transformed into the image of Christ. Yes. The Bible is, is full of that. Using a centering word, is, which is what I do for for meditation and I use the word Maranatha which means come Lord Jesus yes and just as I repeat the words I'll have all of these things about my day that you know are floating through my mind oh my gosh I've got to I've got to get to the grocery store because we were having guests for dinner tonight or I've got to prepare for Joel's IEP meeting or you know whatever these thoughts are always yes. in our minds so you just continue to bring your mind back to your centering phrase Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. And it just helps to quiet all of that busyness that is in your mind. And it really does help you to come to a point where you just, you just become very, very quiet. And when you're very quiet, you can hear the voice of God. You can hear God speaking to you. It's, it's coming to God without all the requests. Um, yes. Normally, prayer is a one-way street. It's everything that we have to ask God for, yeah. intercessory, you know, and, and all of those types of prayer are good, and we need, we need to pray that way. We need to have intercessory prayer. But this is just another form of prayer. We're, we're coming before God simply seeking to be in his presence. Well, another thing we were going to talk about later, but I'm going to go to it now, is Eucharisto. And that is the thanking the Lord and having the joy of his mm. spirit filling us. And I know Ann Boskamp has written a lot on that in her mm. 1,000 Gifts. Yes, and, that's a beautiful book. Oh, it's, yeah. it's so yeah. incredible. And then I have it to is. ask for forgiveness because I'm like, Lord, I want to write like her and I don't. So, you know, <laughs> quiet my mind and just let me know it's okay not to write like that. Yeah, right. But there are times where I think the enemy can can continue to flood our minds with all those things in the day. I'm wondering if you were reading my laundry list of IEPs and grocery shopping and mm -hmm. and yeah. all the things that we have to do, which yeah. there's a balancing act in that. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about the praise part of worship and meditation and prayer that you mentioned? Praise is just, I mean, 
it is so necessary. Mm. And I think that, you know, I think that we, sometimes we believe that it should just come naturally, mm. that what's wrong with me? Why am I not praising? Why am I thinking only about the negative hard stuff or whatever? But really praise is, it's a choice. Yes. And it's a practice. We have to, we have to practice it. We actually create new neural pathways when we practice praise. The, the brain is set up, actually set up to think about dangers and, you know, staying safe and, and everything. And we have, we really have to, we have to create new pathways. And when we choose to praise, when we choose to, like Ann Voskamp, spend our day looking for things to thank God for, and the very simple things, you know, the, the sun streaming through the window and the fireflies at night. The other night, my husband and I just happened to step outside and it was just incredible. I mean, the, the fireflies, it was like better than any 4th of July fireworks spectacular. Wow. Oh, it was, it was just incredible. And just the little things, you know. Yeah. Catching a sunset or chasing a rainbow or walking barefoot in the grass, just the simple things. Um, and then choosing to pay attention to them, choosing to look at them, to stop what we're doing and just look at it. And then to say, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. And to do that throughout the day. Um, and I think for me, getting outside is really important for that. If I'm having a bad day, yes, I'm depressed. I, I need to step out the door and get out into into God's beautiful creation. Well, yes, um, I mean it's God's natural revelation. Yeah. One of the ways yes. that we know we know He is God, or exactly. I mean, if we're yeah. going to go through the apologetics of defending the faith, which we don't need to hear, however, it is one of the ways we know there is a natural order. Yes, and if there's a natural order, there's a natural order -er. That's and right. Seeing his handiwork, that's right. smelling, touching, feeling, sensing. Yes, all five senses. Just soaking it in with all five senses. Yeah. How, did, how did Joel's challenges bring that to light? You know, there were days. I, I mean, there were days that I had... I had to look for, I had to look for, for <laughs> anything, was, anything. Yes. yes. I mean, his, his teenage years were extremely difficult and I had to thank God that I could go to bed at the end of the day and read a book. I had to thank God that if he was up all night, if Joel was up all night, which he was two weeks out of every six through his adolescence, he was up all night <sighs> and to thank God that morning would come and that I could put him on the bus and send him to school. You know, just things as simple as morning and evening yes. and just that natural order, as you said. Um, and for looking, you know, looking for those things that Joel and I could do together mm -hmm. that he really enjoyed. One of the things that, that he really loved to do was to go to Parky's farm, this farm about 10 minutes from our home. Mm -hmm. And where he could just kind of go off on his own, I could I could stay a certain distance from him and let him have a little bit of freedom. Okay. And 
as a teenager, that was really important for him. Yes, and for you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be but honest. In, but in public, I really couldn't do it right. because I never knew if he was going to pull somebody's hair okay. or pull somebody's glasses. And at home, I couldn't let him out of out of my sight, basically, because he had no concept of danger. He'd out the door, you know. So he was a runner? Rock, he, would, he was not necessarily a runner, but a couple of times he did manage to get out of the house and disappear, uh, which was extremely scary. But... Unless it was a really bad day, and then you probably thought, go ahead and run, 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 <laughs> run. <laughs> I'll find you in a week. Because <laughs> it gets so um, hard. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, just really looking for God in the midst of some very, very difficult times and, yeah. and finding him, finding him there. But it, it was a choice, and it, it, it was a practice. There's a book that I have read that I absolutely love called Falling Forward by Richard Rohr. And I don't know if I've mentioned it to you or not. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've read that book and I, I love it. I think I wrote on every page falling, of it. Falling Upward. I think it's Falling oh, Upward. Oh, I think you're exact. See, so you're smarter than I am. So oh. Anne writes better. You're smarter. <laughs> Here's well, I just the book. Read it. There it is. Yeah. Yes. Falling Upward. Mm -hmm. A spirituality for the two halves of life. And I love how he puts... You have to go through the first half to get to the second half. The yes. first half meaning, just mentioned survival skills and our identity and formation and who we are becoming. And, mm -hmm. and then something comes along that crashes all of that for most yes. of us. For yes. you and I, it's been disabilities mm -hmm. or other things as well. Marriage challenges, the loss of a job, the... A challenge with a boss, a move, something you thought was going to work out very well, and it ended up not working out. The loss of a child. I mean, it's endless. Yes. And so yes. the quote that I put, or that I wrote down was, in our formative years, we are so self-preoccupied. We are both overly defensive and overly offensive at the same time, with little time left for simply living the very fact that so many religious people have to so vigorously prove and defend their salvation theories makes one seriously doubt whether they have experienced the divine at any great depth. We are largely an adolescent culture. The very unfortunate result of this preoccupation with order, control, safety, pleasure, and certitude is that a high percentage of people never get to the contents of their own lives. What you're talking about is getting to the content of your own life. Mm. And that can be kind of scary because when we have to face ourselves and how broken we are, another quote that you, that you put in your book is, man is born broken. He lives by mending and mm. grace is the glue. I love that. And you talk in one of your chapters about coming to terms with all the broken pieces. How did you do that? And how did you keep from being afraid of what was coming up? Well, I kind of tossed it, that question out on you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's okay. It, it took a lot of counseling. Yes. And it took a lot of prayer. But I think... I can really say that there, there was so much freedom once 
I did admit how broken I was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we just live in this culture that, you know, we want to be the perfect mom, you know, the perfect wife, the perfect church member, you know, we have the perfect house, the perfect yard, whatever. You know, we work so, we work so, so very hard at doing it all right and good. And, and who defines that anyways is yeah, my question. Yeah, who defines it really? Who says I mean, what's you know, right or good? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we're just inundated with it, yeah. you know, through the media, yeah. really. And But there's so much freedom in finally saying, hey, I'm going to take off this mask because I am not doing, I am, I am struggling here. You know, this is, this is really hard. I, I need to talk to somebody about this. I need to let somebody know what's really going on here. And once you're able to do that, there is, there is so much freedom. Yes. Because that is really when the, the power of the Holy Spirit is, is really able to flow. And when we say, Hey God, I can't do I, I can't do this on my own. I'm sorry, but here here you go. I'm giving I'm giving Joel to you because I can't be a good mom to him by myself. And every time I did that in prayer, God always moved in. I mean, always moved in with a certain person or a certain phone call or a certain book to read, you know. But it's in the admitting, the admitting our powerlessness really that that God's power and, and grace flows. I, I really believe that. And um, as you started to admit that, which is not a very popular thing to do in our culture nothing. and in the Christian culture especially, mm -hmm. did you find acceptance or did you find judgment? Did you sense that you were more uh, alone? How did they respond? Mm -hmm. There were various responses. I know when my first book came out where I, I was very vulnerable about the grief and the problems in our marriage and um, the anger and the depression, all of that. Some people who read the book, and I knew they had read the book, didn't say one word to me about it, just ignored it. And so I knew for whatever reason, they were like really uncomfortable with me putting all that stuff out there. That made me a little uncomfortable, but I just, you know, it was like, okay, they're not ready. They're not ready to look at their own brokenness. My right. brokenness is making them uncomfortable. Right. And that's why people with disabilities make a lot of people comfortable. Because, Absolutely. you know, they're walking around with their slip hanging out. <laughs> You know, people are uncomfortable with that. And that's on a good day. Yeah, that's on a, that's on a good day, yeah. Exactly. So, but then I found that I made, you know, some of the best friends I will ever have in my life through that vulnerability. Hmm. When you can really be real with another person. Yes. That's, that's a friendship that, you know, you, you can't put a price on that type of a friendship. Right. So. What kind of qualities go into that kind of friendship? It was mm -hmm. interesting. I was listening to a talk this morning on compassion. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she said are the en is the enemy of compassion is pity or mm -hmm. feeling sorry for the other person mm -hmm. um, and not listening, but trying to fix and worry about the outcome rather yeah. than just caring. Yeah. 
Well, that that kind of reminds me of Henry Nowen's um, book, The Wounded Healer. Yes. And I, I, I quote from Henry several times in my book yes. because he and has probably it. been a huge spiritual director that I've never met in person, but a huge mentor for me. But friendships where we're able to just simply be with one another and to listen to one another's stories without trying to fix, to just listen. I mean, that, it's so healing. Yeah. And there's, there's even, there's been brain research um, has been done that when we do share our stories, new neural pathways are made. And she made that point in the talk that I was yes. listening to this morning. She said, oh, okay. yeah. she said there is a cortical response when yes. we are truly compassionate with another yes. person. When we're just simply listening. And in my um, Lectio Divina groups that I lead, and I, and I have a chapter on Lectio in, in the book, but we have to we have to learn how to listen like that because our natural response is somebody sharing their story, it's a story of struggle. They start to cry. Our first response is first of all to get that box of tissues and hand it to them, and then to say, "Oh, it's okay. It's all right. It's it's going to be okay. God's with you. You know, it, you'll be fine." That's our that's kind of our natural response, and really, if we can just simply receive each other's stories mm. with an open hand and just honor the story that is it's so honoring to the other person to just simply be a companion mm. on the journey to let them know that we're there and that we care and that we love them and friendships you know when you have friends that listen like that i, I mean there's that can't be beat it is amazing the healing power that that has in our lives, both physically, mm -hmm. cognitively, but also in our souls. And yeah, yeah. I know God's here, and I know I need tissue, and I know it's somehow going to work out together for good, which is taken out of context from Romans so many times, because mm -hmm. it's, we think it's a good that we define, when actually it's a good that God defines. <laughs> Yes. Not yes. that we define. Mm -hmm. So for someone to say to you, I can't imagine what it's like to be awake for two weeks out of six. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hear that and I think, I, I can't imagine. Mm -hmm. How did you survive that? Oh, it was hard. <laughs> Would, yes. We would, um, we would take turns. My husband and I would take turns being the person who would stay up. And very often my husband actually would take the comforter and his pillow and, and sleep right inside of Joel's door on the floor so that Joel couldn't leave the room and that Wally could maybe fall back to sleep. But usually Joel would sit right next to his head and... <laughs> You know, he would rub it, and he wasn't usually wasn't usually being aggressive during the night. He was just pretty wired, you know, and hyper. So right. he would, he would whisper, whisper, yeah, exactly, whisper in his dad's ear, blow in his ear, you know, that type of thing. So there wasn't much, not much sleeping going on. But um, yeah, it was it was those years were were very difficult. Um, you you mentioned a couple of times the challenges in your marriage. 
what what yeah. were some of those and how did you get to the other side of those because there yeah. is such stress that is placed on each individual when there's a lack of physical sleep when there's a lack of time a lack of self-care mm-hmm. um, talk to us about that well each of us has our own way of dealing with stress my tendency is to withdraw to get very quiet to withdraw into my own little corner mm-hmm. and get depressed <laughs> that's just kind of how i would deal with stress mm-hmm. now my husband on the other hand would deal with stress by getting really revved up and not being able to sit down and having to be moving and doing something all the time and to get angry so you know those we, don't go together very no, well <laughs> no they don't go together real quick. so you know it's like we're like two prize fighters each in our own little corner you know yeah and then every once in a while you get in the middle and kind of work it up a little bit there yes so i think when joel was probably i can't remember how old joel was when we sought counseling maybe eight maybe eight or ten something about something around there but we finally i I told wally honey we've got to get some counseling this this just isn't working you know (laughs) right if if we're if if we're gonna go the distance here we've got to get some counseling and the counseling was was really really helpful because i was able we were able to listen to each other with a non-judgmental person leading the conversation Mm -hmm. And I was able to hear for the first time that Wally was really scared. Wow. And he, he, was, he was scared. And his way of dealing with that was to put on this, you know, this big front that, yeah, everything was fine and everything was great. So once I was able to really hear that, I was able to be so much more compassionate toward him. And then once he was able to hear what was going on inside of me, he was able to be more compassionate toward me. And it was hard, you know, go, it's, it's hard to go to a counselor's office and really kind of pour out your heart in front of your spouse. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. Well, when and you don't feel safe, it's very, it's very hard because your fear is that they're going to pounce on the most vulnerable parts of you. Yeah, and either that they're either they're going to pounce or that they're going to totally withdraw from you, you know, and yeah. withdraw everything. So I think there those are kind of the two different ways that 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 people tend to do either one or the other. And so yeah, it's a safe it's a safe place to really let down your guard, talk about how you really are feeling, and then to look at some ways some ways that you can come together to find that common ground. And for us, the common ground really was our faith. So our small group became a place, you know, of of learning, studying the scripture together. Mm. We began to to meditate together. Mm. And then coming out of the quiet, talking about, you know, how we felt God's presence in the quiet, what we might have heard in the quiet. And the other thing that we did was that we made sure that we had time, one-on-one time. So 
at least four times a year, we would go away for an overnight, go to a bed and breakfast or, you know, usually a bed, a bed and breakfast. We uh-huh. really enjoyed that. And just spend time with one another and dreaming about, about our future and dreaming about Joel's future. So that became something that we really started to look forward to this time of dreaming together. Because it pulled you together to work on something positive. Because as you said, I have my papers all over the place, but as you said, you both have now this this practice. And that's a story I was going to read. I don't need to look at that. But you both have the Cloudland organization outside of Oxford, Ohio. Tell me mm-hmm. about that. And was that a part of yeah. the dreaming that came that from was, this? That really? was part of the dreaming process, yes, about... Oh, 30 years ago, we had a dream of buying a retreat center, buying and, and running a retreat center. We were doing youth work at the time, and we thought, oh, it would be so great to have a family retreat center, and that we were going to do it in Tennessee or North Carolina. Then when Joel's needs became, it was obvious that his needs were so great. I didn't want to leave the county we were in because we had such great services okay. there. and. So at least once a year on, on these overnights, we would, we would pray about what God might have us, what type of retreat place we might do. And it, it just kept kind of changing and morphing over time as Joel's needs became greater and greater. And I went back to school to get a master's in religious studies with an emphasis on family systems. So at that time we thought, well, maybe we could do retreat work with families of kids with disabilities. And so for a while, that's a good secure job for the rest of the world. (laughs) (laughs) That's got great job security because family systems, it's a whole family issue. Oh my gosh. It's not just Joel or the one person. It's It's the the boys. It's everything. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, and as Joel's needs got greater and greater and greater, it was obvious that that really wasn't what we wanted to put our energy into, that we weren't going to have the energy for that type of work. Right. We kept dreaming and we would, we would, Wally would sketch things and we would make lists. And so anyway, what we finally, finally came up with was that we were going to have a place that was going to be near a university near a state or a county park. It was going to have an expansive sky in the front, some wooded area in the back. It was going to be, it was going to have a circle drive with buildings around the circle drive, and it was going to be surrounded by gardens. I mean, it was like we had this whole list. And it was going to be a place for people people to just come and meet with God, to have a contemplative time with God. And then I got trained in spiritual direction, so I thought, and I can offer spiritual direction here, and Wally got training in life coaching, you know, and he thought he could do that. So we finally found a place for Joel to live four years ago, um, this farm for adults with autism, not far from where we live, and at that time, we really pursued the Lord. Okay, Lord, we we can do we can do this retreat thing now. Yeah. So where would you have us do it? We came to a state park right up here near, near Oxford for a night, and the Lord said, "Oxford, Oxford's it." So we found a realtor, and I'll tell you what this place that we're at, Colleen, it has it's it's the university is like five miles 
maybe three miles up the road one way. The state park is one mile up the road the other way. Expansive sky in the front, some wooded area behind us, circle drive with buildings around the circle drive and surrounded by gardens. It, it is. It was already built? It was already here. Yes, a hundred year old farmhouse. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it that's like, incredible. It was, it was un unbelievable. I mean, well, it is believable because God, you know, God can do more than we even ask or imagine. So we're just now starting to, to do some work here. Um, we have prayer groups going on and uh, a praise and worship the first Saturday of every month and getting ready to build a cabin for overnight guests and so it's, it's very, and it's been wonderful because the transition of moving Joel uh, was so difficult. It, that was so very hard, but the Lord, it was like the Lord gave this to me and Wally, uh, something, a shared vision to work on together. That's so important, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it really was because these kids just, they're our whole world. You know, yes. they're the center of our universe. Yes. Yes. And when they move away, and he was our baby, so he was the last to go anyway. So when Joel moved, oh my gosh, it was such a huge hole. And we both of us cried for a year. That's okay. Hold on. That is a huge grieving process. Yes. Yeah. He was 20 at the time he, then? He was, uh, no, he was 25. Okay. So for 25 years, you are being empty and then there's this enormous vacancy it had to feel almost like a death without a, a death mm -hmm. even though you're thankful for what was found for him yes yeah we were uh, very excited mm -hmm. that's something that i'm afraid of some of those emotions when john is older because i know that's coming Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you move through some of that and letting go? First of all, we can't, we can't side skirt grief. I mean, it's something that we have to walk through. You know, we, we want so badly to be able to walk around it and we really need to walk through it. And I think that really the practice of Lectio Divina was, um, was really crucial in that transition time for me because you go into the scriptures, just a short scripture and listen for just one word or phrase in that scripture that speaks, that is speaking to you right now in the context of your life as you're living it today. And then you go into the quiet for maybe a half an hour with that one word or phrase. And I was leading two groups, and then I've been part of another group. So three, three times a week, I was doing this type of meditation on the scriptures. And God just was meeting me regularly. And every time, the word or the phrase had something to do with this grieving that I was going through. Um, I, I think grief is part of the transforming process. Mm -hmm. Tell me as you look at it and why it is so vital, is it because it led you into the scriptures to fill you with God's word and with his presence? Yeah, I think that that's what grief does. Um, 
it, it, it breaks us open. Mm. There's, there's an Anne Lamott quote that I, that I <laughs> use in the book. Um, a rabbi yes. constantly tells his congregation, you know, study the scripture, study the scripture, and um, let, it, let it come into your heart. I, I'm, I'm not remembering, I don't think I'm remembering this correctly. Okay. But, but anyway, it's, and then he finally, one of his congreg congregants says, well, you know, why should we put the scripture on our heart? Why, won't, why don't we put the scripture in our heart? Hmm. And he says, no, you study the scripture, put the scripture on your heart, and then when your heart breaks, the scripture will fall inside. And so that's really what happens. You know, our hearts break, our, world's, our word, world breaks open, and the scripture then really becomes so meaningful. Um, because we need it. It's like we need to eat. We need to eat and drink it to be sustained. Really, I mean that's that's how I felt after Joel moved. It was like this was this was food and and drink for me. Really. Well, it was it was hope. It was eternal hope. Now, yes. We try to fill those vacancies with so many other things, and society is so full of opportunities to fill ourselves with tons of different things how did you refrain from doing that and and continue to stay broken open so scripture could come in well i th i think that god had led us to this place we call cloudland hmm. it's just the right time i mean we're it's it's very much of a rural setting even though the university is just down the road a little bit mm -hmm. it's very rural um we're surrounded by cornfields and um mm, wow beautiful gardens. So the, the very place that we're in, you know, really helped that process to just be quiet. And then I was working, actually working on this book. And so that was really helpful because I'm reading, you know, reading some of these authors that, that have been my mentors during the, through the years, Henry Nowen and yes. uh, Anne Lamott, Madeline yes. Langle. Yes, um, yes. Parker Palmer. Yes, in fact, I have uh, a quote by him right here. I was oh, going yeah. to also, well, I'm going to interrupt. I'm sorry. I did interrupt oh, you. Okay. I'm sorry. But that's yes, okay. I, I have this book and I love it. And it says, wholeness does not mean perfection. It means embracing brokenness as an integral part of our lives. Knowing this gives me hope that human wholeness, mine, yours, ours, need not be a utopian dream if we can use devastation as a seedbed for a whole new life. Yeah, isn't that incredible? Devastation as a seedbed for new life. I mean, I just, that, that's an amazing, that's an amazing quote. And, you know, the, the scriptures are just such a, such fertile soil. Yes. Uh, such fertile soil. And then these friendships that, you know, it's, it's just realizing where to put your time in your friendships as well. You know, those people who feed our souls, you know, to, to spend time with those people and to spend time in the activities that feed our souls rather than running around and shopping or, you know, what, whatever, whatever your drug of choice is. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yes, whatever alters, and literally that can alter also brain chemistry in a way that there's a sense of 
satiation from uh -huh. that, but it is not eternal or lasting or full of hope like what you're talking about. And that's what makes the truth so valuable. One of your, one of the verses, and I love in each, in each chapter, what I love is the end you have a practice for us to do. And one of the verses that you had was Psalm 34, 17 and 18. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and rescues them from their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, there have been times when I did not feel rescued from my troubles. And you obviously had to not feel rescued. Oh, yeah. And so... And so we have to look into the depths of scripture. What does the Lord really mean by rescue? When he doesn't take us out of something, he still is rescuing us, probably a lot from ourselves. Mm -hmm. But how would you encourage someone whose heart is broken and they're not feeling rescued? They're feeling mad. Lord, you're not listening back to the beginning of, of, of our conversation. What do you say to that? I think it, it's in the chapter that, that I use that psalm. At the end of that chapter, I have um, an exercise of writing a psalm of lament. Yes. I, I spent a lot of time in the psalms during those really difficult years. And the psalms of lament, I would go back to them again and again and again because the psalmist really cries out and says, you know, where are you? Yes. Where are you, God? You've given me up to my enemies. Yes. I'm drowning here and I'm dying. I'm in the yes. pit. You know, where are you? But then he goes from there. He, he says, I will look back and I, I will see all the places that you have met me and then remembers back some of the places where God met him and did save him and then ends the psalm with a praise yes you know so i will praise you god i will praise you so i really encourage people to get out their feelings and to let god know how they're that they're feeling like god yes. has abandoned them as if he doesn't already know anyways yes right <laughs> But to, to get it out verbally or on paper. Yeah. And but then to look back at those places where God has met them because you know we can all remember a few places that God has met us along the journey. You know, most of us can remember many places. Mm -hmm. To remember them and write them down. Mm -hmm. And then to come to a place of saying, So I will praise you. I will choose to praise you. Even though I'm feeling abandoned right now, I will praise you. And there's something I think about that process um, of being really honest and real with God, but then remembering and then choosing to praise. I've loved that. Mm. I don't know if there are a lot of us that know how to write a lament. Mm. How did you start doing that? Well, you know, I think people think that they need to be a writer to do something like this, mm. but you really don't. You and know, you it's draw. just just pardon you can even draw things if you can't right. write if there aren't words yeah. just draw or sketch just or draw whatever it out. right yeah or if you like to paint you know paint it right it's just being real just being real on paper and you don't even have to do it on paper you can do it out loud in your prayer 
you know. Kathy, I wanted to ask you, there's this in, in your one section on grief, and I've outlined it, in, and, and you talk about parents of children with disabilities know what it is, know what is called chronic grief. We grieve first the death of the dream, the dreamed of child whom we thought of and talked about, whom we conceived and carried and prayed over in the womb for nine months. Some of us carried our dreamed of our dreamed of ch children not in our wombs but in our hearts, and after months or years of labor, brought home our adopted child with absolutely no inkling of what lie ahead. What do you mean by chronic grief? You know, we kind of recycle through the grieving process with each new phase that our yeah. child hits. So. You know, they're a baby, we get the diagnosis, we grieve, and then we feel like we're really doing pretty good. We've come to a place called acceptance. And then they go to preschool. Yes. Or then they go to elementary school, or they go to middle school. Yes. And all, some of those feelings really do resurface. You know, they turn 16 and they can't drive. They turn 18 and their peers are going to college and they're not going to go to college. They turn 25 and other kids are getting married, you know, establishing homes and families. And my son, Joel, will never do that. So some of those same feelings of anger and depression and denial and fear and guilt can, can kind of resurface again. And it's just a matter of, it, might, it probably is not going to be as heavy of a guilt as it was in the beginning. You know, it, it might be a little bit lighter, but um, although I don't know, when Joel moved away, I think I really did cycle pretty deeply back into the depression again. But it doesn't, maybe doesn't take as long to come out of it. Yeah. But it's always there. You know, I think it will always be there to some extent, mm -hmm. some type of grieving. I think it is always there because to be different in this world means that there's a, there's so many different responses from others that also remind us that there is a difference. And then there are the chronological differences and there are the sibling differences and there yeah. are the rites of passage differences, so to speak, yes. weddings and, and yeah. graduations. Mm -hmm. um, it was interesting, my daughter just graduated and I went home and I was thrilled for mm -hmm. her but then I turned around and I cried myself to sleep. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. You know what that's like. I do. Yeah, I do. And it's okay. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's it, it still hurts. Yeah, but it still hurts. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there have been times when my own, when our children notice their differences and they just say i want to be in heaven mom because it's hard to be here and to be different in mm. so many words they can say that john yeah. has said that wow. and i have to quiet my heart and just say lord you know yeah. help me to continue to think beyond this very moment but towards the path that we are on and mm -hmm. what you are leading us towards for this life, but also in preparation for the next life. Mm 
Mm, yeah. I'm really glad. I'm really glad we can be. I, I'm really glad we can be real with each other. Well, I don't know how else to be, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Me neither. I, I don't. I don't know how else to say this is very hard. Mm -hmm. That my son won't ever get married, as you know, we're planning a wedding. Mm -hmm. He'll never walk down an aisle. Mm -hmm. or for that mom who may never have a child mm -hmm. or for that couple that is going through a divorce and the church is pushing them away, so to speak, because they don't know what to do with that. What are some things as we come to a close, what are some ways as believers in Christ that we can facilitate and help others with whatever grief process they are in? Well, I think definitely um, to listen, you know, to listen to the stories, to not give pat answers. Um, You've heard a few probably. I've heard a few, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a few. It comes up um, in every interview. Yeah, to act, act like you're happy to see our children you know, act like you're happy to see Joel, act like you're happy to see John, um, spend time, you know, spend some time with Joel, um, spend some time with these kids who have disabilities, invite us as a family, you know, to do things together. I think that all of those things really help, um, offer prayer, we had our small group, we, had, we were in one small group when Joel was an adolescent who came over and just laid hands on me and Wally quite often when we were really struggling. And then would lay hands on Joel on the days that Joel would let them. <laughs> the, yeah, the days he'd let but he them. didn't slap him away. Right, exactly. Um, and actually, Joel really loved being prayed for, so most of the time he would let them do that. I think that those, you know, just kind of some hands-on things that, that we can do for families that are grieving, mm -hmm. um, just to be there, you know, don't disappear. You know, you really do know who your friends are when you have a child with a disability. It, it becomes very evident who really does care. So just, yeah, just to be there. Isn't presence an incredibly powerful healer just oh someone's gosh. presence yeah i remember one day when john was very young and um i was trying to come to terms with the fact that he would be different for the rest of his life and of course there was not a lot of sleep and and we were in the middle of all this testing and i was sitting on a porch swing and a friend came and sat beside me and she didn't say a word mm -hmm. she just sat there on the swing as we swung mm -hmm. um yeah and as the sun set i thought lord you have divinely appointed this time mm -hmm. because yes. silence has allowed you to come into the broken places yes presence presence is probably the most amazing thing that uh, most amazing gift we can give one another and then learning, learning to come into the Lord's presence. You know, that's, that presence is the greatest healer. And, you know, learning to, 
learning to be quiet and, and to be able to rest. And even in a friendship, you know, for your friend to do that, we think we need to fill up the time with words and we really don't, we really don't. As we close, Kathy, some people who have been listening or who have been watching um, may be afraid. They may not know the Lord. They may wanting, maybe doubting him. Um, what words of encouragement do you have to share with those who are in the ache of life? Mm. Now, I'm going to share something that the Lord said to me. And you can take this and put your own name in the place of my name. He said, Kathy, I want you to know down to the deepest part of you, down to your very bones, that you are who I created you to be. And in my book are written all of the days of your life. Your very footprint was fashioned by me and I love you. So, you know, the Lord, the Lord loves you. And the Lord loves your child. He loves your family. And he really wants to spend time with you. Um, I'm gonna really pray that we all can take that in mm -hmm. because we can feel so unlovable mm -hmm. yeah. if we don't have some list that we meet. That's right, yeah. I wanna encourage all of you to get Kathy's book, The Spiritual Art of Raising Children with Disabilities and to practice the end of the chapter disciplines. And discipline sounds like such a, kind of sounds like a mean word. It's a resting in the Lord's presence. And I also want to leave with a question. Um, Obviously, Kathy, in the show notes, I'm going to put how people can get a hold of you, how they can find out about your retreat center, and how they can connect um, with your other works, and we'll have all of that in the show notes. Okay. But as I, as I end, I want to ask you, what are you afraid of in coming to the Lord? As you have heard Kathy speak or me speak, what are you afraid of? What are you running from? And do you know how much you are loved? And I just want you to sit with that as we close today. We'll have ways for you to connect. Of course, I'm available connect on our blog page as well. But we really would love to hear from you because you are so very loved. Kathy, thank you for this time. Oh, thank you, Colleen. It's been really? wonderful. It really has been. Thank you. You can find the show notes and referenced resources in the podcast description or on our website, reframingministries.com. If you were impacted by today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you rated and reviewed the podcast, shared it on your social media, or share it with some friends who you think would be touched. You can email me personally at reframingministries.com at insight.org. If you'd like to be updated on reframings, activities, and content, please feel free to subscribe on our website. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. 
Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.